friends, brothers, and sisters, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 511 this morning. If you are using one of the Bibles provided, you can find uh, Acts chapter 4, beginning on uh, uh, 4, verse 32, beginning on page 912 of those Bibles provided. Uh, we've been looking at the book of Acts this year, um, and as you may know, Acts is recording the continuing ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, even as he reigns from his throne in heaven. He, early on in the book, Jesus equipped his disciples for the outpouring of the Spirit, and then he commissioned them as his messengers. He said that they would be empowered to go and proclaim the gospel of the risen Lord Jesus in Jerusalem, in Samaria, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And that is what is unfolding right now. Right now we're, we're stuck in Jerusalem, we're watching the life of the church in Jerusalem. The apostles have preached, especially Peter. He's preached a couple of sermons. Uh, he's been arrested. He's given his testimony and defense. He's been released. And the people of God have prayed for continued boldness and evangelism. And again, we're going to stop and look at a snapshot of the life of the church here. And that's what we find in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 511. And what you'll see is another glowing snapshot of the life of the church, but we're introduced to something new as well. We see unity in the church body. We see generosity flowing out of that unity. And yet, sadly, we see a case of hypocrisy. And so what we see in this text, I think, is that God's grace, it, it cultivates unity and generosity in the church, while God also cuts down hypocrisy when it emerges in the life of the church. See if you can spot that in the text now as I read it. Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 511. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias... With his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? 
Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Well, our text, as you probably noticed, it opens up immediately highlighting the unity and the generosity of the church while slowly building to uncover a case of hypocrisy in the life of Ananias and Sapphira. We're going to examine this text together under three headings, unity, generosity, and hypocrisy. Those three words are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Let's begin by thinking about the unity that we see here in the life of the church. And take a look at Acts chapter 4, verses 32 and 33 again. Let me read those verses for us one more time. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. See, these verses, they are a part of of Luke's summary of what's going on in the life of the church in Jerusalem at this time. Luke, often in his narrative, he'll begin to show us some developments in the story and they'll stop and he'll give us a snapshot of kind of where things are on the ground. What's the situation on the ground? That's what he did in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Remember, Peter preached a sermon at Pentecost and many people were saved and they were given a snapshot of the life of the local church there in those verses. And then he went on with his narrative. And here again, we're getting another snapshot of the life of the church in Jerusalem. And we can see that unity is underscored in a number of ways. First, unity is underscored in in, in faith or by faith. Luke says there in verse 32, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. See, the, the company of those who are united are those who are first united in faith. This is what the scriptures teach us. That, similar to what we see in uh, what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 6 to 4, 4 to 6, where he writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all things and through all and in all. So, friends, brothers, and sisters, This is where Christian unity finds its roots. Faith in the risen Lord Jesus. The world will call us to have unity around all sorts of different things. Around race, around a particular political point of view, around economic status, around education, around social ethics. But true unity, indeed lasting unity, the kind of unity that can weather storms and suffering, cannot be rooted in any of those things. It must be finally rooted in our God and Father, in our Lord Jesus Christ, and in the Spirit who gives the gift of faith. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is a unique institution in this world, precisely because its unity bridges so many divides and differences. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 28. Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You know, the world's definition of unity is actually just uniformity. The world calls for the same societal outcomes, uh, the same economic status, the same education, and so on. 
But true unity is not based on uniformity. So uniformity is flat. Uh, Uniformity is surface level. Whereas unity has to have roots. Jesus, you'll remember, called himself the true vine. And if we're united to him as branches on the vine, then our unity goes as deep as he goes. In the church, we can recognize differences in race and class and education and sex. We can recognize them. We don't deny them. But we recognize that our unity is not derived from them or dependent on them, but from and dependent on faith in the same Lord, Jesus Christ. Just consider this church that we're looking at here in Jerusalem. There were all kinds of differences in this church. There were differences in primary languages. There were Hebrew speakers and Greek speakers. There were differences in authority. There were apostles, and then there were the rest. Uh, There were differences in economic classes. We've seen here in our text, some were landowners and some were needy. There were differences in age. We've already heard how young men carried out Ananias and Sapphira. Presumably that means there were old men too. From a human vantage point, the church in Jerusalem was marked by diversity and differences. And yet, that's not what Luke underscores, is it? He underscores their faith in Christ as the agent which binds them together. And their unity is all the more remarkable when we remember the the size of this church by now. At a bare minimum, this church is hovering somewhere around 5,000 believers. That indeed is a full number. And nothing but faith in Christ can hold that many people together with so many earthly differences. Faith in Jesus Christ is what binds our church together too. And in fact, at the end of our service, we'll remember our unity in the faith through the celebration of the Lord's Supper. It is a symbol of our unity in the body of Jesus Christ. So, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16 and 17, Paul writes, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. The Lord's Supper It's an expression of our union with Jesus through faith and by extension, our unity with one another. And honestly, one of my desires, one of the desires of the elders as a whole is to move our congregation back to the use of the table. At that table, we demonstrate our unity. We symbolically portray our unity in the Lord Jesus Christ as it's the family dinner table that we gather around. And remember, we've Um, not use the table for the last 11 months to distribute the elements. And I think we've lost something of a a visible picture of our unity and and family uh, together, symbolically picturing that we break and partake of one bread because we're part of one body, as Paul talks about there. So we, in part, show our faith and our unity together in the Lord's Supper. And Luke, he underscores not only the church's unity and the faith, But he also underscores the church's unity of heart. Did you see that phrase, one heart and soul? This is such a a sweet phrase that we have here from Luke. Uh, Scholars are quick to point out that this uh, phrase, it communicates the idea that believers share a unity in friendship and in purpose. Uh, In other words, these Christians, they, they loved one another and they labored with one another for a same goal. Especially the proclamation of the Lord Jesus. And by implication, they they had to be around one another to be friends and to be treating one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we are to be of one heart and soul, we must cultivate friendships among us. 
Uh, that means that not only do you need to be here when the doors are, are open, but you need to be connecting with one another outside of our public gatherings. Friendships take time and effort to build. So go for walks and hikes and coffee. Go play ultimate frisbee. Do a, a project in uh, a fellow member's backyard. Maybe spread some topsoil around for them and roll it with a log or something to that effect. That get together, rejoice, have fellowship, meals, labor together, and build your friendships. Read scripture especially and pray together especially. They take time, and it's time that you should invest in your brothers and sisters in Christ. Luke underscores the church's unity also in the idea you see there that no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. See, these believers, they shared their material goods because they shared the same heart. We'll think more carefully about their generosity in a moment. But for now, what we need to see that it's easy to give your possessions to someone else when they already possess your heart. It was easy for me to say to Lisa on our wedding day, with all my worldly goods I thee endowed. Not because I had so little, which was true, but because she had my heart and has my heart. It's easy to share what we have with others when we share the same heart. And we should see that this is not just a passive unity, but a unity that promotes the propagation of the good news of Jesus. We see something of that in verse 33. Because the church was so united, the apostles were freed up to powerfully give their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Where unity exists in a church, the elders, the teachers, and the members are set loose to proclaim the good news with power. I don't know if you've thought about it, but a church that's bitterly divided sucks up all the time that pastors and members have in promoting and sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Disunity in each church or in the life of a church eats so much pastoral and personal time and energy among elders and members that the focus becomes on the disunity rather than the unity spurring on the preaching of Jesus Christ. So while unity promotes gospel proclamation, it strikes me also that gospel proclamation itself promotes unity. The apostles, they kept their teaching focused on the core of the Christian faith. That phrase, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, it's a shorthand summary for the proclamation of the whole work of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, and exaltation. Think of it this way, that, that shorthand summary. Um, that Jesus' resurrection, it has to imply something, right? It has to imply his death. And if he had a death, that means he had a life previous to that. So this is something of a synecdoche for Luke, a part standing in place of the whole. Luke is telling us that the, the apostles, they focused and proclaimed this message, this good news of Jesus. They kept the main thing, the main thing, and we should do the same thing. The focus of this church's ministry must remain the, the testimony, the teaching, the preaching, and the work of Jesus Christ. As a church, we have no authorization for anything else. We've got to realize that the moment we start shifting our focus, we're shifting our focus off of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there are so many different institutions in this world that can address many of society's ills, but there's only one institution that addresses and proclaims salvation in the Savior, and that's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we must be Jesus' witnesses. We must be focused on proclaiming Jesus just as the apostles did. And friend, if you're here this morning 
and you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps it strikes you as odd that it's been referred to that, that Jesus was raised from the, from the dead. Well, friend, you need to know kind of the, the background of why that is. The truth is, is that God made the world and everything in it. He made all of us, each one of us. He made us in his image to know him, to love him, to serve him, to follow after him. But just like our first parents, Adam and Eve, they were the first man and the woman that God made and set in the garden. They disobeyed God's command. Well, we have, we've all done the same. We've all turned away from God and decided that we're going to live our own way rather than God's way. And because of that, our sin against the infinite, eternal, and holy God, we stand in danger of facing His just punishment due to sin. But the good news is, is that God the Father, in love, sent His one and only most beloved Son. He gave up His Son to live the life, His Son Jesus, to live the life that we've not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. Jesus loved the Father and did everything that the Father told Him to do. That's what we've been thinking about in John's Gospel on Wednesday nights. Jesus loved the Father and did everything the Father told Him to do. And one of the things that Jesus was called and brought into earth, the earth for, as fully God and fully man, was to lay down His life for sinners like you and me. The shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. He laid down his life taking the punishment that was due to the sins of, of, of God's people, sinners like you and me. And Jesus was paid that in his death on the cross. But three days after his death, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that his life, death, and resurrection from the grave secures the forgiveness of our sins. Because Jesus has conquered the grave, so can we by faith in him. So we turn from our sins. We place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message that the apostles proclaimed. That's the message, friend, that you should believe. You should turn from your sins your rebellion against God and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and that forgiveness is found in Him. That's the message that we as a church family want to introduce you to, disciple you through, and help you know in greater depth. And this preaching, it cultivates grace in the life of a church. It's not by accident that the apostles' testimony you see there was attended with great power and that the community of believers was marked, you see there, with great grace. A focus on the preaching of Jesus cultivates a unifying appreciation of God's grace among ministers and members. A focus on the preaching of Jesus cultivates a gracious spirit among ministers and members. You've met gracious pastors and people before, haven't you? They are filled with the gentleness of Christ. Their speech is suffused with Scripture. They strengthen the weak. They motivate the idle. They fortify the fearful and are exceedingly patient. There is one thing they all have in common. They love the cross of Jesus. They rejoice in Jesus' resurrection. This is true of ministers. And it's true of members. Let's pray for one another in this, that we will be marked by great grace, that we would continue to love the cross of Jesus and rejoice in his resurrection. So members, pray this for your ministers. Pray this for your elders. And elders will be praying this for you as members of this congregation. And I trust that God will be pleased to keep us marked by great grace. Well, this new and emerging church in Jerusalem is marked by unity. Unity in the faith. Unity in generosity as well as what we're going to see next. That's what we turn to think about next. Follow along as I read again Acts 4.32-37. Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. 
but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now we, we read verses 32 and 33 again because I think in these verses we see an ultimate reality that frees us for generosity. It's not by accident that Luke mentions that the apostles were proclaiming the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And I think that this, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, is the ultimate reality that frees us for generosity. You see, if you believe that Jesus has been raised from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins and that you have eternal life in Him, then the things of this world will go strangely dim. If you believe that Jesus has secured for you an eternal inheritance by His resurrection from the dead, then like Barnabas, you can give up your earthly inheritance. If what this If what we have in this world is not all there is, and is not even the best that we will ever have, then we can hold the things that God has entrusted to us with open hands and offer them to Him in His service. If what we have in this world is not all there is, and is not even the best of what we will have, then we would welcome God's use of our possessions that He has entrusted to us. If this world is not all there is, nor does it contain all that we will ever have, then we don't have to fight and scratch and claw to get more. We we don't have to hoard and hope for the best. Instead, we can give thanks to God for what He has entrusted to us at this time. And we can welcome God's use of everything we have for His glory and for the good of His people. Remember, the Scriptures tell us that every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Remember what we sing In the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. All that we are, all that we have is ultimately from God. And we're but stewards of His good gifts to us. But verses 32 and 33 not only show us that the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate reality that sets us free to be generous. Because there's more beyond this life and this world. They also show us the motivation for generosity. Again, it's not by accident that Luke reminds us that great grace was upon them all. Grace is what motivates us to be generous. Christian, remember the immense and immeasurable debt that our sins against God have incurred. As the scriptures say, our transgressions, they've mounted up to the heavens. Oh Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? No, we, we stood beneath a debt we could never afford Our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. God has dealt graciously and generously with us. And it's in light of and response to His grace that we can be generous as well. God's grace toward us. It's His unmerited, unearned favor. We have not merited what God has given to us. We have not earned salvation. Instead, He has generously and graciously bestowed it upon us in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters... God has been very generous with us. He has given us His 
one and only most beloved son, the son who is precious to him. He has shared his son with us so that we might become sons and daughters of God. God has been generous to us. And this is something that you need to have clear in your head. You will not be saved because you've been generous. You will not be saved because you have been generous. We've already seen that believing comes before benevolence. We see that right there in the first verse of our text. We see that this passage teaches us that they, the people believed on Jesus. They received God's grace. And because of that, they were generous. In other words, since God was generous to them in Jesus Christ, they were generous to God and to each other. And as we look at the church in Jerusalem, we see that their giving, it was not compulsory, but voluntary. Sharing their possessions occurs not by coercion, but because of compassion. It doesn't come as a directive of the apostles, but because there exists an appreciation of God's grace and divinely given affection for their brothers and sisters who are in need. And what is striking about this is that the church of the Lord Jesus we're seeing here, it's living up to the, the expectations that God laid upon the people of Israel in the Old Testament. So in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 14, we read, but there will be no poor among you. And that's really what we're seeing it here, isn't it? That there was the, the needs of the many among them were being provided for. And if you surveyed the history of Israel, you'd be hard-pressed to conclude that Israel ever lived up to that expectation. In fact, the Old Testament prophets would regularly rebuke the leaders of the people of Israel and the rich for preying upon the poor. But look at the beginning of verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. Not only are all of the promises of God being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, but in the community of His Messiah and His Son, God's expectation for His people are being fulfilled as they're living out their faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, as the church lives out her union with Jesus, she's filling out all the expectations that God had designed for His people. And then you see... If, the, if verses 34 and 35, if they, they give us a summary of the church's activity as a whole, in verses 36 and 37, we get kind of an individual snapshot in the life of the church, or one practical example of what it means to sell one's possessions and provide it to the apostles for use among fellow believers. Luke, he's introducing us to Barnabas. Barnabas is going to play um, a larger role in the narrative going on. He's going to be a missionary with Paul. And here, Barnabas plays a, a wonderful example for us of what it looks like to be generous. He's a, he's a rare bird, both for his heritage and for his heart. Uh, we learn, as we see here, that Barnabas is a wealthy Levite. If you know your, your Old Testament, you know that Levites in the Old Testament, generally speaking, didn't own land. They were part of a special priestly lineage. They were to be ministers at the tabernacle and temple. And as I said, ordinarily, they didn't own land in ancient Israel. But things, for Barnabas at least, had clearly changed. In all likelihood, as the people of God were driven out of their land in exile, forced to live in foreign lands, then the patterns of their lives changed. Somewhere along the line, Levites, like Barnabas, began to own land. And now, maybe from our kind of Western and American vantage point, owning property is no big deal. But in the ancient world, owning property was actually pretty uncommon. Um, it might have been fewer than 17% of the population at the time owned land, whatever the case may be, what we see here is that Barnabas is a real encouragement to the apostles as he provides for the church and for the ministry that's, that's going out. He sells a field and he brings the entirety of the proceeds and he 
lays it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is kind of exemplary of the kind of behavior that was going on in these days in the life of the church. Now, we need to address something head-on that I've been kind of dancing around for a little while now. And that's the question of whether or not this passage teaches Christian communism. Well, here's a short answer. No. And here's a long answer. No. Um, No, it doesn't. Communism, as you may know, is the political and economic doctrine that aims to replace private property and profit-based economy with public ownership and communal control of of at least the major means of production and the natural resources of a society. That's the definition that Arizona State University professor of political science Richard Dagger gave for communism. You know, in his own communist manifesto, Karl Marx said, uh, in, in this sense, the theory of the communists may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property. Well, what we see in the book of Acts is that even though believers began to hold everything in common, uh, private property actually continued to persist. Uh, there were landowners, after all. Uh, in, in just a few verses, Peter will tell Ananias, Hey man, didn't you own that land? Well, that, that was fine while you owned that land. It was yours. I mean, didn't all that money that you received from the proceeds, didn't that just belong to you? The problem came in when you were presenting yourself as, Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm giving you everything that I've received from that. That's where the problem came in for Ananias. Peter was saying, yeah, look, it was, it was fine for you to have all those things. The problem really was hypocrisy. We're going to have to think about that in a minute. But even Peter, in that response to Ananias and Sapphira, is acknowledging that that was legitimate. It was fine for believers to own land and to have uh, proceeds and take in wealth. No, private property, it persisted in, the, uh, in the, uh, the local church. In fact, when we get to Acts 12, we'll meet Mary, the mother of John Mark, and we're going to learn that she had her own home. Uh, also, where communism seeks to make sure everyone has an equal amount... Uh, What we see straight from our text is that the apostles were not concerned to make sure that everyone had the equal amount, but that the needs of the community were met. So the apostles, uh, we note here, they're not starting a a compulsory giving campaign. Uh, Communism is compulsory. Uh, This was not based upon compulsion or coercion, but upon compassion. So, So you should be clear in your mind, I think. Communism is sinfully coercive. Communism is sinfully coercive. It is a legalized form of theft, and it should be rejected. The law of God in the Eighth Commandment teaches us that private property is a natural right in God's sight. So the Eighth Commandment teaches us that we should not steal, which means that other people own possessions, and that's good and right for them to. That means that property naturally belongs to us and to others. Indeed, that command teaches us that we ought to lawfully procure wealth and income, that we must procure it and pursue it. It also teaches us that we are forbidden from unjustly taking our neighbor's wealth or from unjustly having it taken from somebody else and given to us. The solution to envy and greed is not a systematized distribution plan, but really a hope of the resurrection from the dead and a home in heaven, in the new heavens and new earth with our crucified, buried and risen Savior. And I wonder if you think, as these believers did, right? even though they had their possessions and they held them open for them to be used to meet the needs of the poor, I wonder if you think of your own possessions as available to your needy brothers and sisters. Are we generous in that kind of way? 
While as a church family, we seek to provide for the needs of brothers and sisters through our benevolence fund, and while we have never run out of funds, what would we do if those funds ran out and a brother or sister were still in need? Would we be willing to do the kinds of things that we see here? Would we be willing to sell our homes or refinance them or refinance our vehicles or sell our vehicles and perhaps downgrade to a, a lower vehicle? Would we be willing to take these kinds of dramatic steps to make sure that a member of our church family didn't go, uh, their, their needs weren't met? You know, during the, um, during the last 11 months, I have uh, heard a believer say that I can't take the risk of going to church because I don't have insurance. And if I ended up in the hospital, I wouldn't be able to pay my bills. That should not be a concern on the heart of any believer who's a member of our congregation. My reply has been, dear Christian, come to church. Your church family will cover your bills if you end up in the hospital. You do not need to worry about your finances. Remember, we have a benevolence fund here at Arlington Baptist. We are trying to help members who are in need with that fund. And if your bills mount up to the heavens, then God will be able to supply your needs. Your church family will help, and you need not worry. We've got you covered, and we ought to be committed to that. And I'm not saying that any of that needs to be done today. I'm not saying that you need to refinance your house or downsize your house or refinance your vehicle or anything like that. We're presently not facing that situation. But should we come to it? You should know that the elders will share the needs that we have in our church family. And just as Barnabas was a leader in the early church and he led by example, you can be certain that the elders would intend in our own lives to lead by example as well. Still, you should search your heart and ask, am I so grateful for God's grace? And am I so persuaded of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that I would be willing to generously share with others what God has shared with me? You should search your heart and ask yourself, do I really believe that Jesus got up from the dead and therefore I'm not free to store up treasures here on earth for my own pleasure, but to give them away for the needs of my brothers and sisters in Christ? In one respect, the grace of God seen in churches and in the lives of individuals is their posture toward generosity. I think that you are an incredibly generous church family and I praise God for that great grace that he's displayed in and through you. We need to think about, though, how churches and Christians treat the weakest and neediest among them indicates our understanding of God's grace and Jesus' resurrection. And to be clear, the scriptures do indicate that the responsibility of a local church is to care first for the needy among them. That's what we see here, believers caring for fellow believers. And while there's the freedom to care for those outside of our congregation, Galatians, texts like Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, teach us that we are especially responsible for those of the household of faith, our church family. And if I can, I want to make one more application with respect to generosity. And as strange as it may sound, it is important. You must work for wealth to be generous. That's the application point I want to make. You must work for wealth to be generous. If you are able-bodied, then it is important for you to go out to work and to get paid for your work. You can only care for yourself, for your family, and be generous toward your fellow church members if you work, if you accumulate wealth, and then give it away to the needy as it arises. If we are to be generous toward God and the advancement of His kingdom, if we're to be generous toward our fellow church members and meet their needs, then we need to actually generate income. So, those of you who can, 
go and make a bunch of money for the glory of God. But let me also warn you, money is seductive. It can lure you away from your duties to God. It can lure you away from your duties to your family. It can lure you away from your duties to your church family. Make money, but don't serve it. Serve the maker, not the mammon. It's not a sin to be wealthy. It's a sin to misuse wealth. It's a sin to sit on wealth and treat it as your security, your only hope, when God is really our only hope. It's a sin to worship wealth. It's a sin to be stingy with your wealth when you can meet a brother or sister's need. It's also a sin to use wealth to promote your own piety, which is what appears to be happening in the scene with Ananias and Sapphira. So let's turn and consider our third point on hypocrisy. Follow along now as I read this passage again. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Friends, brothers and sisters, if you do not deal with the Lord with integrity, he might strike you dead. He might strike you dead. I I don't know about you, but I'm grateful for this text for a number of reasons. Aren't you grateful that we have Acts chapter 5 verses 1 to 11 in our Bibles? I mean, so far in the book of Acts, we've been given an ideal picture of what God's church should be like. It's a picture of believers who love preaching. It's a picture of believers who long for fellowship, who meet together, who eat together, who pray with power, who evangelize with boldness, and who demonstrate radical generosity. Who wouldn't want to be a part of a church like that? We want our church to be like that. But why would I say at least one reason why I'm grateful for this text? Because the Bible is honest. There has never been a perfect church, even from the beginning. As a church family, we have our flaws. And even this wonderful church in Jerusalem that was so profoundly marked by the Spirit had its flaws. We have our sins and our struggles, and so did the church in Jerusalem. The Bible is honest about Christians and about churches. We're flawed, and we need the Savior. Among those problems this church in Jerusalem faced was the vulnerability to Satan's temptations. We see that here. We we see one temptation, the sin of deceit and the sinful fear of man. 
Well, we've seen what happens to liars in the text. We, we shouldn't lie to ourselves. We've got to be honest with ourselves. You and I, we're vulnerable to Satan's temptations, aren't we? You've experienced them this past week, haven't you? Be honest with yourself. It's possible for us to be deceitful. Maybe you haven't told an outright lie in this past week, but maybe you haven't told the whole truth. Maybe you've shaded the truth to hide some immorality. Be honest. We wanted other members of our church family to think well of us. So we've spoken in such a way that we we hope will cultivate an affection for us. Approval. Yes, this is what was going on with Ananias and Sapphira. And this can go on with us, too. And all of this we can place under the umbrella term of hypocrisy. Um, One pastor said that uh, hypocrites show fairest at the farthest. That's true, isn't it? Um, What we see here is that Ananias and Sapphira, they're presenting a false front. That's what they were doing. Uh, Together they sold a piece of property. It's a perfectly uh, non-sinful, legitimate thing to do. Uh, Then they kept back proceeds for for themselves. Also, a legitimate, non-sinful thing to do. What becomes plain in verse 3 is that Peter, he's given divine insight to discern that Ananias was keeping back part of the proceeds for himself. In other words, he was presenting a false front. Ananias was pretending to be like Barnabas. His, I'm pious in this way. I'm, I'm selling my property. And all that I receive from the sale of the property, it's, it's going to you, the church. Though Luke doesn't record it, we can responsibly assume that this is what Ananias has said to Peter. That's an easy conclusion, I think, for us to get to, given what Peter says to Sapphira there in verse 8. He asks her, did, did the property get sold for this amount? And she affirms it. So she confirms the price and her husband's deceit. They were pretending that the amount that they sold the land for was the amount they were donating. And of course, this was a public act, right? They're laying it at the apostles' feet. They were virtue signaling to the church right in front of the apostles. The apostles, we must remember, they're authorized ambassadors of the risen and reigning Jesus. They have been equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit to bear witness to Jesus' resurrection. And as Ananias and Sapphira lie to the apostles, thereby extension lying to the Holy Spirit. They're lying to man, but they're lying to God. The sad reality, the sobering reality, is there was no need for this. As I mentioned earlier, Peter makes plain in verse 4 that this land and the proceeds, they belonged to this couple. The giving was not compulsory, it was voluntary. If they weren't able, then they didn't need to feel shame that they couldn't give as much as others, or they couldn't give all of it. Or they didn't need to feel inadequate by the giving of others. We need to understand something about the wealth that we all possess. God's grace in this material world, or in this world, God's grace, the material wealth that He gives, it's varied. He gives more to some than others. And that's His divine prerogative. And it's not sinful. He's not wrong for doing so. We're not wrong for having more or less. We're not measured as more righteous or less righteous in God's sight based upon our wealth. Beware of the traps that the fear of man can put you into. Do not be ashamed of what you have. Give thanks to God and be content. God knows what he's doing in distributing his goods and his gifts to us. Ananias and Sapphira could have given only a portion of the proceeds. They could have kept some of the proceeds to meet their needs. But what they wanted was the public praise of men. So privately they hid the truth. Or we should say they tried to hide the truth. There's one children's song that says, Jesus died so I don't have to hide anymore. 
When we rest in God's love and approval of us, we don't have to worry about what others think. We need to learn this lesson too. We see here that Peter is confronting these believers in their sin. When you are lovingly confronted about your sin, repent. Peter offered Sapphira an opportunity to repent and to tell the truth that he asked her about the price of land. She should have repented and told the truth. Friends, brothers, and sisters, when you are confronted in sin, tell the truth the first time. Don't dig in and don't dig deeper. This passage teaches us that God is serious about sin in the church. He teaches us that saints in the church are going to sin. It teaches us that leaders in God's church must care about sin. It teaches us that leaders in the church have to address sin. Peter, he had divine insight into Ananias and Sapphira's sin. And to be clear, your pastors and elders, we do not have the kind of insight that Peter had. Nevertheless, when Peter came to see Ananias and Sapphira's sin, he didn't sweep it under the rug. It is a kindness of God to be confronted in our sin. Brothers and sisters, the pastors of this church will from time to time have to talk to you about your sin and what you're struggling with. And we hope that you will understand that that is a gracious gift of God to you. It is a kindness of God to send believers into your life to say, hey, I see that you are mired in sin. I'm here to point you to Jesus and to help you get out of it. Friends, brothers and sisters, let us recognize this about God. He knows all things and sees all things. There is nothing you can hide from God. You you might be able to hide stuff from your pastors. You you might be able to hide stuff from your boss. You, You might be able to hide stuff from your spouse, children. You might be able to hide stuff from your parents. But you cannot hide anything from God. When you lie, you may very well lie to men. But at the end of the day, this world is God's court. And you're bearing false witness to the judge of the earth. And he knows it. When you lie. Indeed, we see here a sobering picture of the biblical truth that the wages of sin, that the just payment that is due to working in sin is death. God strikes Ananias down dead, and he does the same with Sapphira, and he is completely just in doing so. Yes, he's done this same kind of thing before in the Bible. He's punished many by death. He is a God of truth, he's a God of righteousness. He's a God of justice, and he will not tolerate lies. If he does not punish lies immediately, then he will punish them eventually and eternally. If our lies are not punished in Jesus Christ, in other words, if we are not hiding ourselves in Jesus Christ, trusting that he bore the punishment due to our sin for our lies, then we will bear the punishment for them on the last day. And we must stop and think for a minute about why God might punish hypocrisy and deceit so forcefully and publicly in his church, right? Not just the church was afraid, but we see that the broader community was set to fear as well. Why might God punish hypocrisy and deceit so forcefully? On the one hand, the answer is simple. Our God is a God of truth and love, and our God loves the truth, and he defends it. On the other hand, what we're also learning in Acts is that God's people are to be God's ambassadors. We are commissioned to take the good news of Jesus to the world. And if we are not truthful in our speech and in our person, then how can others really believe us when we say that Jesus got up from the dead? Christian, your truthfulness, your integrity, is important to your witness to Jesus. Friends, 
Brothers and sisters, we need to understand this about the God of the Bible. He is holy and he's not to be trifled with. We should fear to disobey his commands. We should fear him. Our, our text twice says he is to be feared. This was part of the Lord's purpose to teach that church in Jerusalem that he is to be feared. That congregation that was endowed with great grace was not to presume upon God's grace or abuse God's grace. We need the same lesson today. And that's where I'd like for us to conclude. I want us to conclude by thinking about how grace, how God's grace to us in Jesus Christ is actually the antidote to hypocrisy. When we present a hypocritical face to God, when we present a false front in public, when we pretend to be pious in the church, what we're saying is this, God, I don't trust your grace to cover my sin. God, I don't trust your grace to cover my weakness. God, I don't trust your grace to maintain my reputation. God, I don't trust your grace to cover my faults, to cover my flaws. So I'm going to have to cover it myself. That's what we do in hypocrisy. And the problem is, of course, because we are sinful and weak and faulty and flawed, the only way for us to cover these things in our own strength is hypocrisy. But the only way to really deal with hypocrisy is to acknowledge it and to accept God's gracious forgiveness of it. I have a fellow uh, pastor friend who loves to say, it's true that the Christian church is full of hypocrites. And Christians are the ones who are honest about it. And there's always room for one more. And I think that's true. The antidote to hypocrisy is not the rejection of God's grace. It's not to try and pretend that we're not hypocritical. It's to own up to our sin. Confess that we have sinned in these ways. It's to receive God's grace. Not to attempt to cover ourselves with fig leaves. That God, and usually others, see right through. Now the antidote to hypocrisy and the desire to be loved by men is to remember that we are first loved by God and covered by His grace and the righteousness of His Son. He knows all of our faults and all of our flaws and He loves us just the same. His gracious love is not like ours. It's not fickle in the face of failure. It doesn't fade when mistakes are made. He's not afraid to come after us when we wander away. Christian, there's no greater love than God's love. We've done nothing to earn it. We can do nothing to lose it. So we live in His love. We magnify His love and show that we are satisfied by His love and grace above all things. By casting off hypocrisy and resting in His grace to us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray for that now. Let's pray together.